from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is Ag Day. The life of a rancher. I love it. I really do. We head to East Texas where one man can't wait to start each day. How much land is foreign held? New numbers show a large increase. And crossings closed. Mexico is a huge deal for the corn market uh, this year and, and in any year. The impact the closing of two railroad crossings at the southern border could have on the movement of U.S. Ag right now on Ag Day. Ag Day presented by Pioneer. What's next happens when blood, sweat, and tears meet rain, wind, and sun. Pioneer, what's next happens here. Good morning, I'm Clinton Griffiths. Happening right now, two key railroad bridges are closed along the U.S.-Mexico border. And that has rail officials concerned about delays and moving all kinds of ag products on both sides of the border. U.S. Customs and Border Protection announcing it was temporarily halting rail operations at the international crossing bridges in Eagle Pass and El Paso. Now it says it's due to a surge in migrants moving by train. Ag Day's Michelle Rook has been looking into the problem. And Michelle, what impact could this have for ag? Clint, while there is no definite timeline for the closure of the U.S.-Mexico border at these railway crossings, it just adds to the logistic problems already facing the grain market, including low water levels on the Mississippi River and the Panama Canal. And so it is a headwind for U.S. ag exports, but in particular corn. There are six big rail crossings between the U.S. and Mexico, but Eagle Pass and El Paso, Texas are two of the largest and move ag products to Mexico, including grain from several Midwestern states. Eagle Pass and El Paso, the two that are delayed, are the number two and number three rail gateways by volume, respectively. The Union Pacific and BNSF railroads have asked for government intervention immediately to solve the issue. UP says these locations represent 45% of their cross-border business. On his podcast, Grain Markets and Other Stuff, Vaklovic said this could hurt the U.S. grain market if the issue doesn't get resolved quickly, especially with Mexico as the top corn export customer. Mexico is a huge deal for the corn market uh, this year and, and in any year. Of all the uh, export commitments in total for this current marketing year, Mexico by far is the largest buyer of U.S. corn. Mexico accounts for 47% of all U.S. corn export sales this year. So again, I I don't I don't think this is going to be an issue. I think this is going to be a short-lived deal. It's a man-made issue. It's not a drought issue. That doesn't mean it couldn't result in some delays though and choke up this system a little bit, which uh, would not be a good thing. So let's hope this is very much short-lived. The closures have Mexican poultry farmers worried who depend on rail shipments of feed. Around a quarter of Mexico's yellow corn imports from the U.S. and 63% of its soybean paste imports enter via these two border crossings. The Association of American Railroads is urging Congress to make a policy reversal on the border issue as the rail network in North America is interconnected. The CEO says, quote, every day the border remains closed. It just unleashes a cascade of delays across operations on both sides of the border, impacting customers and ultimately consumers, end quote. I'm Michelle Rourke reporting for Ag Day. All right, thanks, Michelle. Another problem area for transporting goods right now, the Red Sea, where shipping is grinding to a halt and vessels are starting to take different routes, which means longer journeys. It comes after attacks on commercial vessels in the Red Sea by Yemen's Houthi rebels. Oil firm BP among those announcing it has decided to temporarily pause all transits through the area 
in the waters off the coast of Yemen. The U.S. announcing it's creating a multinational naval force called Operation Prosperity Guardian to protect merchant ships in the Red Sea. It's estimated 10% of the world's trade passes through that region. An update on a tariff dispute between the U.S. and the European Union. The two sides agreeing to extend a truce on steel and aluminum imports. The European Commission announcing that retaliatory measures would be suspended through March 31st of 2025. The move saves EU steel and aluminum exporters about $1.6 billion in tariffs annually. Now, the U.S. will need to extend its own tariff rate quotas to match. It's not expected to end current TRQs as the two sides are currently negotiating a new agreement which would provide a permanent solution to the trade dispute. USDA says foreign-owned farmland in the U.S. grew by more than 8% last year. The number owned by foreign entities totaling 43.4 million acres of forest and farmland. However, that is just 3.4% of total U.S. ag land. Now on this map, the states in orange are where foreign-held ag land is 2.4% or more. As we've reported, the issue over foreign-held farmland has become a hot-button topic on Capitol Hill. Well, Washington analyst Jim Wiesmeyer telling Farm Journal's Stein Morgan he thinks this will be something more states take up next year. It's something to watch. Some more states uh, will or, and have picked up, and it's an emotional issue. Uh, you and I were both in Missouri recently, and it's not a simple issue. In fact, they were worried about the negative consequences of going too far. No one's saying that uh, uh, China should not be watched relative to buying farmland near airports. There's some national security involvement there. But uh, more than a few farmers are looking at uh, some, some potential downsides uh, relative to that. Look at Smithfield and the number of acres they own in Missouri. It's not an easy issue, uh, but and it's not as simple as some of those states uh, say that want to keep out uh, any, purchase, any foreign purchases of U.S. farmland. That's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Now, Canada remains the largest foreign investor of U.S. land, accounting for 32% of the total foreign-held land. China accounts for less than 1%. The West Coast remains firmly in the bullseye for moisture, where as warmer temperatures are on the way for much of the Midwest. Meteorologist Matt Engelbert has more. Yeah, when you look at the precipitation outlook, uh, the 24th through the 28th, you can kind of see uh, those uh, two phases of the jet stream coming together. Initially, it's going to be on the West Coast, so above average wet conditions and across California and the Northwest, that Pineapple Express opening up. As that energy moves from the west to the east, we're going to get the Gulf, uh, Gulf of Mexico moisture involved as well. So you see more of the wetter than normal conditions spread in and across the United States. There's a caveat. This is precipitation, not snow. Now, this is all going to be possibly rain as we go into next week with warmer than average temperatures. And as I just talked about, uh, so you have wetter than average conditions on the West Coast, above average conditions uh, for a good portion of the United States as a ridge builds in this weekend. So for this afternoon, you've got more of the 50s and the 40s overnight and into tomorrow morning. Uh, temperatures only cooling down to around 40 degrees in Omaha and the 30s in Minneapolis. I say that because temperatures staying above freezing in Chicago and Minneapolis as we go into next week. And it's a great when you have a friend on the farm or two. Now, Kevin says his dog Jazz is everybody's friend. And you can see Jazz gets a lot of love in Fort Collins, Colorado. I'll have more on your forecast 
coming up. Grain farmers are likely to see tight margins again next year. That's according to a new research report from Rabobank. Economists at the lenders say the tight margins from 2023 are likely to stick around. Take a look at this graph. It shows soybean farmers in blue should see the best operating margins, while the outlook for corn in orange and wheat in dark purple are relatively flat to falling. Now, economists say pressure from a large Brazilian crop is likely to keep a lid on those prices unless weather limits production, while uncertainty in Ukraine and the Black Sea gives wheat the biggest upside potential, adding that the only certainty in 2024 is price volatility. Chances for rain in South America since soybeans tumbling on Tuesday. We'll talk about it next in Markets Now. And later, rain or shine, this Texas rancher loves the job. We'll take a tour and find out why this producer is so passionate about the work in the country. And we have another winner of the Case IH Holiday Giveaway. Rob Owen of Willows, California is the winner of a Case IH Prize Pack, which contains a lot of great stuff. Now we'll announce another winner tomorrow morning, and there's still time to register. This weekend, U.S. Farm Report will reveal the winner of our grand prize, the Farm LC Pedal Tractor. Be sure to sign up and tune in to see if your name gets called. CaseIHHolidayGiveaway.com Ag Day is sponsored by Germinator Steel Closing Wheels. Perfected in conventional, excels in no-till. Order your Germinator Closing Wheels today. Talk of possible rains for key soybean growing areas of Brazil pushed prices here at home down. Michelle Rook is back with a deeper dive in markets now. Tuesday's market closes lower except for the wheat market. Kevin Dooling with KD Investors joining us. Uh, soybeans did pull back on Tuesday, Kevin, and we have rain in the forecast, but is the market trading that? Is it concerned about this crop? The market doesn't feel like it's concerned at all. And and a lot of these forecasts have ended up being, uh, you know, they, they've really backed off on amounts of rain that have fell. And so what Oh, you see the pressure today. I mean, it's a combination of the, you know, it's Christmas time, so a lot, not a lot of volume. And then on top of that, the computers are looking at the forecast saying more rain, more rain. Um, you know, you've got a percentage of that crop that's just, it was just finished planting. And so some of that crop still has a chance to make it if this weather pattern does shift. And so you've got a lot, a lot of that going in there. Yeah, you know, it's odd. You see a lot of pictures, a lot of problems, and it's one of the worst droughts on record. And, and you know, at what time does, does that come into play, especially with the, the demand uh, being as strong as we've been? We've seen, we've seen China in almost every day buying soybeans. So corn down the last two days, did corn just follow soybeans on Tuesday, or was there some concern about the Mexican rail issue? You know, I think the Mexican rail issue started it. That's a concern. I mean, you've got shipping problems all over the planet right now. And I, so I think that was part of it that, that kept anybody from wanting to take a long position. And I think the computers fell through, followed through with it on Tuesday to, to follow soybeans. So talk about the wheat market. The pop on Tuesday, was that just short covering? Most of the wheat, wheat rally has been short covering. I have not seen any open interest increases as we've gone up. Um, we've, we've ran into, you know, major world demand. I mean, we've seen all the bigs start with big tenders in, you know, China, Egypt, Saudi, the Saudis, Algeria, you know, the list goes on. Um, right now, everybody's trying to acquire the product. And I think the hedge funds want out of that market. And so they are the ones, you know, causing the rally, which is, 
which is good. And we're seeing the spread trade, you know, improve as well. So um, I think we have more to go there. Thanks, Kevin. Dueling with KD Investors. We'll have more update coming up. Ag Day is brought to you by Advanced Acre RX from Winfield United, the comprehensive customized program that's paying off at operations across America. Visit winfieldunited.com slash AARX. The jet stream's been uh, very consistent, uh, at least the pattern has been very consistent the last couple of days. Wednesday going through the holiday weekend. You got uh, that nor'easter, uh, that cutoff low over here on the right side of your screen. And then as we talked about just a little bit ago, the above average rainfall in and across the west coast. And that's what this little circle is indicating right there. Ridge in the middle of the country. Now again, that energy is going to translate and down to the south with another push of some energy coming in to the north. Between the two, uh, that's going to give a little bit more broader forecast or rain in the forecast across the United States as that jet stream energy kind of phases together. It's going to pick up not only some gulf moisture, but also have some of the energy with this uh, to the north to bring widespread showers in and across the United States. Now, notice the jet stream, this is going to be on Friday. The other thing, kind of like a teeter-totter, as this trough digs, and with the help from uh, this energy back up here in the northwest, what you'll see is the trough digs to the south, while the ridge will start to strengthen to the north. That's where our near record high temperatures come into play Saturday, Sunday, even a little bit into Monday with this ridge building. So the stronger this trough, uh, the warmer those temperatures could become this weekend and next week. By Sunday and into Monday, you see that uh, white line really scoots up there into Michigan, but also deep into Canada as well. Now, the one thing about this cutoff low that we're seeing show up in the jet stream is not a lot of cold air behind it. The coldest air is still locked up into Canada. So while we're expecting a cool down and rain, this isn't one of those Arctic blasts coming through the United States as we go through Christmas and then again coming up on Tuesday. So here's a look at the temperature outlook the 24th through the 28th or the entire month of December so far. We'll start off in Lincoln, Nebraska, mostly cloudy high around 50 degrees low of 38. Lincoln, Illinois, high of 48, low of 34. Lincoln, North Carolina, sunny, high around 51 degrees. Margins for pork producers remain tough. We have the latest numbers coming up next. And later, finding joy in the job, we'll meet a Texas rancher whose passion is contagious in the country. Hog profit margins have tumbled to their lowest point since the summer of 2020. The latest sterling pork profit tracker showing that farrow to finish hog producers saw losses of $57 per head last week. That's about $6 more than the losses from the previous week. Pork producers also saw losses of about $12 per head a year ago. Lean carcass prices averaged $50.96 per hundredweight. That's $3.88 per hundredweight lower than the previous week and down more than $33 or 40% from a year ago. Meanwhile, pork packers saw profits of about $62 per head or $8 a head more than the previous week. It was their 
best profit margins since October of 2021. A company is now accredited to make sure California's Proposition 12 is carried out. FSMS certification and audit saying it was approved by the California Department of Food and Agriculture. It says through audits it will help businesses verify that their animal housing conditions and record keeping meet the law's requirements. California's Prop 12 mandates minimum space requirements for farm animals such as egg-laying hens, breeding pigs, and veal calves. It also requires distributors become certified to ship those qualified products into California. And the company says Prop 12 enforcement begins on January 1st. Now, running a livestock operation can be hard. Passion is contagious when it comes to farming and ranching, and one Texas producer's genuine love for it is impossible not to catch. The Texas Farm Bureau talks with David Henderson, an East Texas rancher, and there's nothing he'd rather be doing. I've always wanted to be in agriculture, ever since I was a kid. I mean, to me, when you're growing something that you know somebody's gonna be happy to eat, it's satisfaction that you know you're doing something right and somebody's happy with what you're growing. My name is David Henderson. I'm a cattle rancher. We're in Palestine, Texas, and I raise cows. I was raised on a farm just southwest of Houston in a family of eight kids, all guys except one girl. From the time we were born, my daddy always did crops, had cattle, and had pigs. I'm a graduate of Prairie View A&M University. When I was at Prairie View, the USDA offered me a job full-time. After I got my degree, I came on with NRCS, which is Natural Resources Conservation Service. From there, I ended up working with them 34 years. I also spent time in the National Guard. Well, I spent 17 years in the National Guard. I've had my own cattle operation for over 30 years. I started out with, I think, two cows, and that was on my parents' place. <laughs> and since then, I've grown to where I'm at now, and it's just a cow-calf operation. That's where you're raising calves that will go to the sale barn. Those calves will normally be steaks, all different cuts, the prime cuts at, at the supermarket. Primarily, my cattle uh, are crossbred cows. Most of the cows in this part of the world, you want at least a touch of Brahma in them and they just match this part of the world better. But we have to fit the market too, so I've slowly went to Angus bulls. The cows are crossbred cows, but I use purebred bulls. I downsized last fall, as a lot of people did because of the drought, we didn't have the hay. And I still probably consist of around 150, 160 mama cows. I target for my calves to hit the ground somewhere around the end of December to March. That doesn't always work like that, but that's the way I target. Say if those calves are born in January, we try to make sure those calves are somewhere around six, seven months old, then they're ready to go to market. And we hope they'll meet our target weight. This part of the world is prime for, for Bermuda grass, Bahia grass, the grasses. We get a, uh, quite a bit of rainfall. It fits a cattle operation really well. My hay operation consists of about 150 acres of hay that I cut, and I'm talking about actual hayland. It's not grazed and hay, it's, it's literally hayland. What I normally shoot for is four rows to a cow for the winter. So really, I try to come into the winter with at least 200 rows past what I normally need. Say if you would catch a bad winter, I still can walk through the winter and have extra hay. I think what it takes to make a really good cow rancher is you have to have it in your heart. As long as you got it in your heart, you can make things work out for you. I love coming out here seeing grass grow. 
I can see calves from babies when they're born all the way to 550, 600-pound calves going to market. I love it. I really do. I mean, it's, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Don't think it's peaches and cream always in agriculture. But I, if you love doing it, you love doing it. I love it. Our thanks to the Texas Farm Bureau for sharing that story. And that's all the time we have this morning.